Hello, everyone, and welcome back for the 11th episode of Take It or Leave It, where we discuss the hottest topics in the world of workplace leaves, absence management, and accommodations. I'm Meg Toth, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, friend, and colleague, Josh Seidman. Josh, happy belated Father's Day. I hope you had a nice weekend. Did you guys do anything fun? Thank you, Meg. Thanks so much. Great to be back with you today, and thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. So happy that you're joining us for today's episode. Uh, Yeah, to your question, I I had a really nice Father's Day this year. It was my first Father's Day as a parent of two kids, so that brought up some nostalgia and time to reflect on the last few years. Now, that was obviously very short-lived, you know, as most things are when you have two kids running around the house and pulling you all over the place. And that was especially true because this year we got to split our time on Father's Day between two separate barbecues, one with each side of the family. So I was really full by the end of the day and am still feeling barbecued out, probably will be at least until July 4th weekend. (laughs) Lucky you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was uh, was a lot lot of hot dogs and a a lot of hamburgers this year for sure. Yeah, hopefully your wife was in charge of the craft this time. I remember on Mother's Day you were dealing with those, so hopefully she got mm-hmm. you back. <laughs> yep, the handprints are on the other foot or some saying like that in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. How about you guys? How was Father's Day and the Toad household? It was good. It was good. Uh, a lot of sports watching, breakfast making, beer drinking, all the things mm-hmm. my husband loved. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. That sounds like the way the way it should be. Yep. Yep. It was good. Always, always nice to be with the family. Oh, well, that is great. And uh, I'm glad you guys had a nice time celebrating. And uh, we're really, uh, again, excited today. We have really unique, an episode that isn't necessarily on the top of mind for many employment lawyers, but one that we are so excited and so thrilled to be bringing to all of you today. And that is the impact that leaves and accommodations may have on employees working in the U.S. on work visas and the status of their work visas. Now, neither Meg nor myself can even pretend to be immigration experts, which is why we are so excited and so lucky to have our guest here today, Angelo Paparelli, a partner and immigration law expert from our Los Angeles office. Angelo is a certified immigration law specialist for California and a fellow in the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers with experience in a wide array of subspecialties of U.S. immigration law and a focus on employment and investment-based immigration. He also serves as an expert witness and consultant on immigration issues arising in litigation and as an advocate for due process reforms to America's immigration laws. Angelo, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to Take It or Leave It. It's my pleasure. I didn't realize I was going to be with such an animated co-host. Both of you are uh, quite lively. I'll try to match that level of enthusiasm. (laughs) <laughs> well, it is uh, uh, when we have the topic like today, it's very easy to get excited and to get animated. It's, it brings you up out of your seat. Exactly. Exactly. We'll and, and happy decide. Father's Day to you as well. Thank you. Happy Father's Day <laughs> very much. So uh, we're so happy you could join us for today's episode. We'll hop right in because I know we have a lot to cover. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about the application process for a U.S. employee working on a work visa? Sure. And I'm happy to do that. Basically, the process entails something in writing submitted to a federal government immigration agency. That something could be a petition that is filed by an employer with unit of the Department of Homeland Security, USCIS, 
or it could be a visa application that an individual, a non-citizen, applies to get a work visa and gain admission to the United States. In either case, there are terms and conditions attached to the request, and ordinarily the request will designate whether it is full-time or part-time and compensation and a variety of other points of information. So it is expected by the immigration authorities that when a person enters the United States or if they change status in the United States to a work visa category, that they maintain that status. That means they live up to those representations about full-time or part-time employment. And you should understand that this can apply to all non-immigrant visa categories, not just work visas. It can apply to students and exchange visitors, research scholars who are undertaking independent research. And so there's this concept called maintenance of status. And status is granted when a person is admitted by Customs and Border Protection at the airport or when their status is changed by USCIS. And obviously, a leave of absence and an accommodation, these two activities may raise a question about whether there is a continued maintenance of status. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit later about special regulations associated with three work visa categories, the E3, which is unique to Australian citizens, the H-1B, which applies to citizens of other countries without regard to nationality, or the H-1B1 visa, which is like the H-1B, but it has an application only to citizens of Singapore or Chile. We have seen that the legacy agency that predated the Department of Homeland Security in Immigration Matters, known as Immigration and Naturalization Service, and the successor, which is USCIS, have established that a leave of absence may be appropriate depending upon all of the facts and circumstances. So maybe we should get into particular categories. Sure, sure. Angela, thank you for that overview. So, so helpful. And it's funny, I hear you running off some of the different letters and numbers, E3, H1B, H1B1. And we have all these you know, numbers and acronyms in ours, you know, FMLA, ADA, PSL, PFL and on our side. It's funny how all of our different specialties, you always want to try to shorten things as much as possible <laughs> to make it simplified for you. Well, it's uh, sort of like an alphabet soup, but let's hope the the broth actually tastes good at the end. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you're, you're speaking my language. I am I am a, a big soup fan on this side of the uh, of the presentation today. So any any t soup references that we can get throughout the the episode, I'm I'm all in. I'm not going into Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a short walk away from that spot in, in New York City. It is a, it is a nice one. I, I go there as often as possible. <laughs> cool. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Back to immigration leaves. So the visa process, now that we have a bit of an overview, understand a bit more about this maintenance of status concept. Can you give us some high level thoughts on an employee's immigration status or maybe the fact that they're working in the U.S. on a work visa? is important in the context of a leave of absence. You already started down that road. Maybe give us a little bit more color on sure. that point. Well, there are consequences, adverse consequences to the employer and the employee if there is a violation of status or a failure to maintain status. The individual may be disqualified from applying for a green card in the United States through the process of adjustment of status. They may be placed in removal proceedings if the Failure to maintain status is discovered by the authorities. Removal is the 
current word for the good old word deportation, which no one likes. And if they stay beyond the period of admission, in other words, if the status is discovered and they don't leave promptly, remaining more than six months, but less than one year from the date of the status violation or expiration of status could result in a three-year bar upon re-entry to the United States. So they would be prevented from getting a visa and prevented from returning to the United States for three years. If they stay in an out-of-status condition for more than one year, they might be subject to a 10-year unlawful presence bar. So from the perspective of the individual, it can be very serious. From the perspective of the employer, if the employer knows that a leave of absence constitutes a violation of the terms and conditions of the petition the employer submitted or the supporting letter the employer submitted to the consular officer, that can lead to a violation of the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, which says that an employer who continues an individual in its employ, knowing that the individual is unauthorized because of a status violation, can be found to violate that statute. That is typically a civil fine. There can be other consequences more serious than that, depending on the nature of the violation. It could even lead to a felony prosecution in extreme circumstances. So everyone ought to be concerned that when the subject of leave of absence or accommodation comes up, that some care be given to think through what will be the effect. Wow. So it really sounds like this isn't just something that may impact the employee's ability to work. It has some potential significant consequences for the employer as as well. Wow. That's right. Um, Yeah. So and it also sounds like, from what you're saying, the nature of the employee's leave of absence is a big deal in terms of what the leave of absence is for, because it sounds like some absences are more likely to lead to a violation of status, while others may be less likely to lead to a violation of status. Is that right? Right. Well, typical reasons for a leave of absence that are quite foreseeable, medical reasons, including maternity leave or paternity leave, would not likely be considered a violation of status. A leave of absence for an extended vacation or a sabbatical, or if the employee wants to go off and write the great American novel, that could very well be seen as a violation of status. And so the circumstances are important. And It's also important to ascertain whether the leave is extended and extended and extended. In short, short term leaves for legitimate purposes such as medical care, disability, something like that would not be a violation of status and would not need to be reported to any government officer. That's great, Angelo. And really, a lot of nuance and and careful care that employers have to pay attention to in terms of what the nature of the absence and the leave of absence is in, in these contexts. Let me ask just to clarify a couple of points from that last response. So it sounds like if an employee is eligible for and approved for a legally protected absence, such as under the federal FMLA, maybe a state paid family leave law to go bond with a new child, or maybe even is taking time off under a a local paid sick leave ordinance. Those exist all over the state of California, New York, and elsewhere around the country. Would those types of leaves be considered more likely than not approved or or not approved in in this context of an employee's uh, status? Well, you have to understand that it's not a matter of advance approval necessarily. It would be a retrospective look back at uh, Mm -hmm. what, what occurred 
at the next stage where the individual seeks an immigration benefit. They will normally review the individual's history of compliance or noncompliance, and then there could be an issue. So as a general matter, none of those would be problematic. Got it. Great, great. So what happens in the event an employee is aware that their leave of absence would be considered not acceptable, but they take the leave anyway? How should an employer handle these types of situations? Well, the employer should have a serious conversation with the employee and urge the employee to consult with his or her own independent immigration counsel to get some advice. But if a leave is prolonged, it calls into question the capacity of the employee to fulfill the job requirements as they were specified in the petition or supporting letter, then there may be a need to switch to a different non-immigrant status, such as a a tourist uh, known as the B2 category, where someone can be in the U.S. legitimately for medical care. Or it may be need, they need to just uh, reduce their hours and they can perform part-time. Now, in a part-time situation, there is a remedy. It requires a filing of an amended petition. And because ordinarily, most jobs are sponsored on a full-time basis. But if there is a filing of an amended petition because of a reduction in hours, that could come up as a required activity under the three categories that I said have special considerations, the E3, the H-1B, or the H-1B1. And it doesn't mean that they can't initiate the part-time arrangement immediately, but they do have to file an amended petition, and ultimately that petition needs to be improved. Ordinarily, there ought not to be a basis to deny someone a reduction in hours as long as it's carefully explained as to the reasons why. Mm-hmm. And, and Angelo, to, to piggyback on, on that last point you made, you know, oftentimes we'll see requests for reasonable accommodations for things exactly like what you're describing, you know, a reduction in hours, a reduced work schedule, perhaps remote work, even leave as a reasonable accommodation. Is there anything that employers need to do for employees who are working under a visa when they're considering and granting those types of accommodations that might result in lower hours in a given work week or a different work location, maybe even teleworking or working from home, anything like that that comes up in this context? Well, yes. And this actually came up quite a bit during the pandemic when employers shut their offices and employees had to work from another location. In the case of the three visas I mentioned, There is a requirement that the prevailing wage in the geographic area of employment be paid, or if the actual wage paid by that employer to other similarly situated employees is higher, that wage would be paid. And so because prevailing wages are measured geographically by area of employment, normally defined as whatever is within normal commuting distance, then if it is outside that area of normal commuting distance, there must be an amended petition file. If it is in the same general commuting distance, there must be either electronic or paper posted notice to the other workers that an H-1B worker is being introduced at a new job location. This becomes somewhat absurd in the case of individuals who are working from home and because in theory, and the Department of Labor has not relented on this, there must be a posted notice 
And it could be electronic, and that would resolve it. But if it's not electronic, it would be posted at the home of the individual on the supposition that there may be other H-1B workers or workers with the same employer at that home. And this is when the law suggests some rather absurd consequences. But I know employers who are particularly careful about avoiding any suspected noncompliance that they've encouraged the employees to post it on the refrigerator and post it near the bathroom window. And uh, that should lead to an interesting domestic conversation if there are others in the household. But right. <laughs> nevertheless, that's what's required. Now, one thing I didn't mention, and I think it's important, is that if the employee just has to terminate the employment because they cannot continue for health or personal reasons, on most of the work visa categories, the government will allow a discretionary 60-day grace period for being unemployed. And it's discretionary because, as I said, the government at some point will look back at what happened and determine whether the circumstances were reasonable. If there was unauthorized employment during that 60-day period, if there was some form of fraud or national security concern or a criminal conviction, that would mean maybe there would be no grace period. But ordinarily, there will be a grace period, and that would allow for a change to another category or departure from the United States. The other thing I should mention, and I, I, I'm sorry if we're running around here, but I think it's really important, and that is that when an employee requests an accommodation or a leave, and it's not related to the circumstances of the business, then the obligation to avoid benching individuals, suspending their ordinary pay because they are in non-productive status would not be triggered. So there is, again, applicable to the E3, H1B, and H1B1, there is a concept that if the employee experiences a period of non-productive status because of conditions unrelated to the employment, and it's at his or her voluntary request and convenience, such as touring the U.S., caring for an ill relative, or where the individual is simply unable to work because of maternity leave, automobile accident that may temporarily incapacitate the individual, then employers are not required to pay for immigration purposes, but there may be, and you are the employment lawyer experts, there may be other statutes that trigger an obligation to continue payment of wages. Very interesting. So if on the topic of extended leaves and leaves of absence that may last a long period of time, if an employee is on an extended leave, for example, they took an exhausted FMLA leave and then they were granted leave as a reasonable accommodation for an additional period of time, which we know sometimes can last months and months and months, if their visa status is set to expire during that leave period, what, if anything, should the employer be doing? Well, ordinarily, whether there's a leave or there is a continuation of the normal employment, when the period of status is about to expire, an employer is expected to file a petition to extend the validity period of the approved petition and extend the underlying work visa status and employment authorization. So when an employer files a timely petition, in other words, before the expiration date, there is an automatic grant of 240 days of employment authorization, and that may be one way to deal with it. The 240 days may run shorter than that if the government decides the case in less than that time. 
So that may be a good faith way for an employer wishing to accommodate the employee to lay the circumstances out and let the government consider the petition. Obviously, there are ways to achieve an expedited adjudication of a petition through something called the premium processing service with the payment of an additional fee, but you wouldn't want to expedite the adjudication in this situation. Very interesting. Let me ask you this. Are there any special considerations relating to leaves of absence under Form I-9, the Employment Eligibility Verification Rules? Yes. The government normally says that when an employee is hired for the first time, that's treated as a new hire and an I-9 must be completed to verify the identity and the employment eligibility of everyone, citizen, non-citizen. But in the case of someone who goes on a leave, the USCIS regulations say that an approved leave, an employer-approved leave, may not require the completion of a new Form I-9. It would not because it is not treated as a new hire as long as both parties, the employer and the employee, have a reasonable expectation of continued employment at all times. So if the employee doesn't have a reasonable expectation or the employer doesn't, then the employee returns, that would be treated as a new hire. But as long as both parties are in in sync and they agree that this employee wants to come back in full force to the work site or the job, however it's defined, then there is no need to do a new I-9. It wouldn't hurt to put a memorandum accompanying the I-9 file that just explains the circumstances. It would not be turned over to anyone unless Immigration and Customs Enforcement were to initiate a notice of inspection and audit of the employer's I-9 process. But ordinarily, that would not occur. So it's just something to note that action need not be taken to treat it as a new hire if there is, on the part of both parties, an approved leave and a reasonable expectation of continued employment in the future. Very interesting. Finally, I I just have to ask one last question. I've heard you mention the word benched or benching a couple of times, and what immediately comes to my mind is is an athlete who's taken out of the game and not allowed to play anymore. So I'm hoping maybe our listeners are thinking the same thing and might be interested in understanding sort of what the issues are related to benching or what exactly it is. Could you explain that for us and why it's a big deal? let Let me give you some of the historical context. Congress was concerned that some employers may bring in cadres of non-citizens who are available to be assigned to work, but work does not actually exist. So they created something in the law that says that an employer must continue to pay the required wage during periods of non-productive status that are attributable to the employer. And that is what we in the trade call benching, and benching is prohibited. The alternative, if there is a reduction in work and there's just not sufficient demand, is either to terminate the employment or to file an amended petition indicating that there is a reduction in the work. That's what an employer should do when there is a change circumstance attributable to the job. But when it is attributable to the individual, and it's at the individual's voluntary request, and I mentioned a few of those situations, a maternity leave, accident that renders the individual incapacitated, 
a vacation. Now, be careful about vacations because they should not last multiple months. Normally, vacations are going to be consistent with whatever the employer's usual vacation benefit program might be. But the point is, those do not require continued payment of the wage. And so it would be a good practice to document the reason why the employee is not working full time or according to the number of hours in the petition. Wow. So, so many moving pieces, Angelo. So, so much information. And thankfully for us and for our clients, we, we have you and your team available to keep everything straight for us. That was, that was so helpful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. We, we really enjoyed our time with you today. And to our listeners, thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Take It or Leave It. We'll see you next time.